Hello everyone, welcome to our Saturday broadcast. For those of you who might be new here, this is a live broadcast. If you're watching this after the fact, this was broadcast live Saturday, 3 p.m. September 11th, 2021. For the first part, I'll give a short talk, after which I'll answer questions. And during the first part, you're welcome to use the chat box to talk. Once we enter into the questions phase, I'm going to delete anything that isn't a question. But for now, you're welcome to chat. Better than chatting, though, is practicing with us. Take this as an opportunity to engage with the Buddha's teaching. We don't have any video, so you're not distracted by my head. And just focus inward. Focus on your experiences. My talk today is on the Four Foundations of Mindfulness. I specifically want to talk a little bit about the Sutta, the discourse on the Four Foundations of Mindfulness, and a specific part of the Sutta. Today is uh, September 11th, which has some significance for people in this part of the world. A lot of Americans listening big significance in America. Remember when my teacher in Thailand found out about these people flying passenger airline, passenger planes into World Trade Towers in America. His response was if they had practiced meditation they would never done they would never have done such a thing. That's the way of it. We can become such incredibly horrific things through lack of mindfulness. There are horrific things, horrific acts done daily all over the world, constantly, by people so lost so bereft of sati, who don't know what they're doing, who don't clearly see the nature of their inclinations, that they engage in things that cause such torment to themselves and others, with no, no benefit whatsoever. Mindfulness is such an important quality. The Buddha starts the sutta by saying, mango. This path, this path of mindfulness, this path of the four satipatthana is the, the ekayana manga. Ekayana means one way. So it might mean 
the only way. It probably doesn't literally mean that, but it certainly appears that that's the sense that the Buddha gave this the satipatthana, the establishing of mindfulness, is so central to our discovery of the truth and the nature of reality that anyone who argues that there's another way or that it's not the only way is going to be hard-pressed to explain how you could do it without mindfulness. And not only without mindfulness, but without mindfulness being the focus, because it's not even just a matter of having this Dhamma or that Dhamma, this, this quality or that quality. Mindfulness is the focus. It's so unique. It's unique in that it's practical. It's practicable. And that it's not possible to focus too much on mindfulness. It's not possible to put too much of your attention into mindfulness that you might neglect something else. It's not possible. Mindfulness really is the, the starting point, the entry point on the path to enlightenment. It's the very base of our practice. Sati is a simple word. It's a word that doesn't have necessarily any religious or spiritual connotation at all. Sati means remembering or recollection. So it's used in an ordinary sense as the ability to remember things that happened a long time ago. That's sati. If someone is able to remember things that happened a long time ago, that ability to remember, that sati. It's important to bring up because it helps us understand why the Buddha used this word or help us understand in a much better way than the English translation mindfulness ever does what we're trying to accomplish, what are the salient qualities of our practice. Because remembering, the Buddha uses specifically for the purpose, or as far as I can see, I'm not the Buddha, but what I learn is that he uses it for the very specific purpose of telling us to not lose track of our experience. To not let our reactions and our prejudices color our or or remove us from our perception of of experience. So remember, the Buddha said, basically telling us remember. And it, it doesn't actually mean remember the past or the future. That's not what's being said here. He's saying take that quality of the ability to remember things and use it to help you remember the present moment. It's a different kind of remembering. It's not the kind of thing we'd normally think about remembering. 
It's usually the thing that we're least able to remember in the present moment. We're much more liable to forget it and get lost in the past or the future. Or our judgment of things, we forget our experience. So remembrance, think of sati as being, a tra being translated by remembrance and understand that what that means is remembering the, the, the present remembrance. Are, are you in a state of remembrance about your current experience? Meaning, are you with your experience, grasping it perfectly as it is? Or are you judging it and getting lost in what you think about it or what it makes you think of? past, future. When you feel the pressure against the seat you're sitting on, your feet against the floor, when you hear the sound of my voice, are you cognizant of that as sound? That's mindfulness. When you get to that point, that's the remembrance the Buddha enjoined us to cultivate. It's not ordinary. It's not something you can just say, okay, I decide now to be mindful. It's something you have to develop. The ability to be present and not react. To grasp experiences just as they are. That grasping, it's not grasping in the sense of clinging desperately. It's grasping in the sense of grasping a concept. You grasp the nature of it. But grasping has the meaning, the connotation of, of holding firmly rather than wavering. Mindfulness has the quality of not wavering. It's that wavering that is involved with reaction. When pain arises, the mind isn't strong. It isn't able to experience that as pain. The ordinary mind is wavers and falters and falls away from the pain, getting caught up in desire to remove the pain. There's no, there's no strong grasp of pain as pain. We've forgotten. We've forgotten the pain. Forget about that pain. How do I get rid of it? So I wanted to go over some of the language in this sutta. It shouldn't take long. There's just a few things. The sutta is something we maybe don't talk about enough, but we should. And there's some Pali words that really, it's very concise, but they really uh, detail some important points. So I'm going to skip the first part about what mindfulness is for. And there's the five benefits or the five reasons for practicing mindfulness that are very important. But that's not the talk I want to give today. Uh, so the first part is something that should be fairly familiar if you've read my booklet on how to meditate. The Buddha talks about what it's like to be mindfulness. He says, what are the four satipatthana? He says, here one dwells kāye kāya nupasi viharati. So, so that part, first of all, is can be a little bit confusing depending on the translation you read. But the Buddha says, and he uses the word pasi, he says, one dwells seeing the body in the body. 
depending on how you interpret that translation or how it's translated, it, it's very easy to misunderstand what's being said here or what I think is a, a misunderstanding. And, and the misunderstanding can go so far as there are groups who think that what this means is that inside of your body there is another body. And inside that body there's another body. And deeper and deeper until you get to the Buddha body, it's really kind of baffling how, well, Dis disturbing how how people get that out of this translation or this how they translate that or this but it's quite a simple phrase I don't want to dwell too much on this this means dwell seeing the body in the body but what that means is seeing in regards to the body the body does that sound familiar it means it, it's like seeing in regards to pain seeing pain it's important language because he's saying see things as they are and he uses this language throughout. I'll point out a couple of other spots where he's clear that what he's saying and why he uses the word sati is because you're to remember it as it is. You're supposed to have have this quality of seeing things as they are. So the body isn't uh, a body. We had this problem recently. We were using a translation that I think is mistaken. Was it in in uh, what was it? Sees a body in the body or something like that. Sees the body as a as a body or something like that. And that's exactly the opposite of what should be understood from this. You shouldn't see the body as a body because that's not that's losing track of the actual experience. Body is experience, it's physical. So when the Buddha says, in regards to the body seeing body, he means only seeing that reality that you actually experience. So when you move your foot, there's an experience of the motion of the leg, the sensation of the touching of the floor. Those are real, those are experiences. Those are bodily. And that's all you see. You don't see a leg or a body or a being. You don't perceive it as good or bad or, or right or wrong. So your mind is with the experience and as an experience. And then he says, Atapi Sampajano Satima. And this is the part that should be a little bit familiar. The, these are the three qualities of mindfulness that I talk about a little bit in the booklet. Atapi means effort. So our mindfulness has to, our practice has to involve effort. But really it's not exertion in terms of straining yourself or pushing yourself. It's more like waking yourself up or dragging yourself off your bed. The, the dragging the mind out of its complacency to go to the object. When you make the effort to put your mind with the stomach, when you make the effort to say to yourself, rising, that takes effort. Not a lot of effort. But you want to do that again and again and again and again for a half an hour or an hour. It takes some effort. The effort to bring the mind back to the object again and again. That's atapi. 
Tapi means uh, exertion. It literally refers, it has connotations of, of heat. It's the exertion that it takes to be mindful. Sampajano, it relates to wisdom, but here it really just means knowing the object as it is. So Sampajano is when you know that the stomach is rising, you know the stomach is falling. A part of it is just that moment before you start to judge, that pure awareness. But another part of it is after you're mindful and you keep that awareness and you strengthen that awareness through satima. So the practice of sati, sati, satima means having uh, recollection, having remembrance. When you say to yourself, and the stomach rises, and you say to yourself, rising, there's that strength of mind that recollects body as body, doesn't waver, doesn't falter, doesn't associate it with good or bad or me or mine. Just body is body, rising is just rising. It's just an experience. And that leads to some to a continuous state of, of wisdom or clarity that sort of miraculously opens your eyes to so many things that you just never saw. It's like this whole world right underneath your underneath your nose. Just there there all the time that you never really saw habits that you have that you didn't realize you had different aspects of your personality that you didn't realize were causing you such stress and suffering distraction addiction worry doubt depression breaks all those things apart through the clarity of vision that's sampajanya Next part is Vineya Loke Abhija Dolmanasam. This is this is explained to mean that what you're doing is putting aside desire and aversion in the world. And so I'll go with that, but it could be understood a different way as as it's conventionally often understood as in the past sense that you undertake this having put aside your desires and aversion but it's pointed out that well you haven't actually put them aside until you be until you're mindful but in a conventional sense you have so let's take it both ways so before you're going to practice mindfulness, you have to put aside worldly affairs. If you're going to up, undertake, if you're going to undertake to meditate, you have to first put aside all of your ambitions, all of your grudges that you might hold. You have to just give up everything before you start and just say, "Look, I'm going to put that all aside for now. Put aside the world." But then, on the other hand. The other way of looking at it is correct as well, that through the practice of mindfulness, you actually do, in a very real way, give up your 
worldly concerns, you know, the things that keep you tied to stress and worry and depression, your 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 obsession with what might come or what has happened in the past. You become well, we'll get to what you become, but the practice is also for the purpose of in, in a much more real and fundamental way giving up attachment. So that's the first part of the sutta, and that's useful. Those three qualities describing what mindfulness is. The next thing I wanted to mention is at the end of each section, there's a part that doesn't get enough attention, I think. I have to give it a little bit of attention here. So just quickly, the Buddha talks about, in each of the section, a different way of practicing mindfulness, different basically examples of how one might practice mind. What does it mean to be mindfulness? Basically, seeing things as they are. It's, it gets to more examples like with, with the breath or with postures. It is what it is. Knowing the posture as it is, knowing the breath, the rising, the inhaling as the inhaling and so on. But at the end of each section, he, he, he describes what is happening when you do this. This should give us a little bit of idea of what we mean by being mindful in all these occasions. So when you practice meditation, the meditation that we teach here, what are the qualities and what is the nature of the practice? He says, iti ajatangwa kaye kayanupasiviharati. So internally, externally, one dwells seeing the body, seeing in the body, seeing seeing in the body, just the body. You're seeing the body just as body. Internally, externally, both internally or ex and externally. And this one is a bit confusing because how do you see the body externally and internally? And the commentary gives some idea that, well, you know it, you, you can see someone else's body. It's because the sutta is not just about the way I'm describing seeing experiences. The sutta does allow for a little bit of conceptualization where you observe someone else's body and it helps you appreciate the nature of your own body. So I don't want to dwell too much on that, but internally, externally, most importantly is internally, I think. I think the commentary agrees with that. The second part is important because it does outline one of the important qualities of the practice of mindfulness, and that's the seeing of the nature of the arising and ceasing. So samudaya dhammanupasi, samudaya and vaya, the beginning and the end. And you'll see this throughout the Buddha's teaching this emphasis on the importance of the beginning and end. And why is there such an importance placed on the beginning of things and the end of things? It's because our misperceptions of self and stability and satisfaction rely upon a delusion or an, an ignorance in regards to the 
ephemeral nature of things. So reality, all of our all, all of our ideas of things like concepts like people and places and things are composed are formed through our perception and reflection and processing of moment-to-moment -moment experiences so they're dependent on those things and they only arise conceptually out of those things you never actually experience another person you only experience sights and sounds and smells and tastes and feelings and thoughts that you put together the same goes with everything in the world and so the ability to appreciate that dependency it doesn't make you say oh well people don't exist in reality it's not that's not the point the point is it helps you to appreciate the limits of your knowledge and how much of what we think we know is dependent on our own biased and limited and and limiting um, processing of our experiences that is so much caught up in things like culture and uh, bias neuroses how we process what people say to us right what we hear, how we process what we see, what we smell, taste, all of our senses, even how we process our thoughts, what direction our thoughts take, they leave reality so far behind. Right? The importance of mindfulness is how much it grounds us in reality, keeps us from those conjectures, those making those connections where none is warranted. And a huge part of this is seeing the beginning and end of things. So that that allows us to appreciate the momentary nature of reality. That actually reality isn't made up of people, places, and things. Reality, the only reality we can ever know, is made up of moments of experience. So it helps us helps weaken our belief or our perception that that people and things are are real, that they exist beyond our perception of them right it, it it takes us out of that conceptualizing that is so fraught with danger liking and disliking and so on but this last part i think is the most interesting part where the buddha says one establishes sati just as Atikayo, the body exists. Or it is body, let's say. That's more accurate. Atikayo. Body is. And what this, this it, it's so hard with language, but there's no question that what he's getting at here is the trying the attempt to explain in 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 the most precise language possible the clearest language possible that what you're trying to do is cultivate this state of awareness that sees body as nothing but body where you've you've shed all of your biases your reactions your prejudices your conceptions your proliferation of what you think of things. 
and it's not that we're not we're, we're trying to ignore what we think of things it's it's in fact quite the opposite we're quite interested of what, in what we think of things but we take a observer stance even to those things we want to appreciate that what we think of things is just what we think of things and and understand that there's nothing real about our perceptions of things we believe something is good or bad there's nothing real about that it's just how we process things and it's not that we want to stop processing it's that we want to understand processing as processing and reality as reality and appreciate the difference because it's only through doing that that we can come to any kind of objectivity or the ability to change to 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 acknowledge and recognize when we're hurting ourselves when we're engaging in destructive sorts of projection reactivity engaging in habits that are to our own detriment to the detriment of others we can only recognize that if we're objective if we're actually looking seeing things as they are and with a proper perspective And the next part, Yava Deva Jnana Mataya Patisati Mataya and Patisati Mataya. Stop there. Yava Deva, just so far to the extent of knowledge, the extent of knowing. Right? So again, this is driving home this idea. What he's explaining here is just knowing. Get to the point where you just know the experience as it is. Just matta means just to the extent of knowledge, jnana. And then pati sati matta. Pati sati. Again, using the word sati, but with pati in front means something like specifically. Pati sati means just as it is, remembering only. Matta again to the extent, just to the extent that we recognize the experience for what it is. Bare awareness, this is sometimes called, where there's no baggage. This is why we have this mantra. The mantra is so pure. Find a mantra that is purely about the experience, and it has such a power to keep your mind focused and pure and objective. Keep doing that systematically, and you'll prevent your mind from getting lost in your perceptions and reactions. Anisito javiharati, one dwells independent. And that's the key, is because when we react to things, we become dependent, also somewhat, you could say, enslaved by them. We are at their whim. Certain experiences arise, pain, let's say, a very simple, ordinary example. Pain becomes our master. We are at its whim. We can't face it. We have to bend to its will. Pain comes, oh, I have to do something about this. It, it, it makes us, it's like cracking a whip. We're, we're, we're at its beck and call. Pain is our master. And the same with pleasure. We think of something we want and we're helpless under the thrall of the pleasure, the desire to get what we want. We'll do anything to get what we want. We become blinded by it. We are nisita, we are dependent. Anisita is a great 
description of the quality that we're trying to attain, where we are independent. Not it doesn't mean we run away from the world. That's not the point. We become independent from the world. The world has no grasp over us. We're able to engage peacefully with the world without any dependency on it being this way or that way, not being this way, not being that way. And finally, natchakinchi loke upadhyati. One doesn't cling to anything in the world. Description of what it means to be free. Don't cling to anything in the world. And again, it doesn't change what we experience, not so much. It just straightens out our relationship with things so that we're no longer dependent on things. You don't have to give up anything in mindfulness practice. So people are often afraid of what they might have to give up. You don't really have to give up anything. You just become free from it. You do, you're much more able to do, quote unquote, what you want because you're not slave to wanting. You're free to do what you know is right and good and a source of happiness and peace. All right. So I've talked long enough. That's an introduction to the Satipatthana Sutta. Some of it might be a little bit over your head. It was a little bit quick, I suppose. But these are important points. I encourage if you have a chance to read the Satipatthana Sutta. It's a good source of background on the practice. It gives you some idea of what we're engaging in here. But let's move on to questions. If anyone has questions, I'm happy to answer them. At this point... I instruct our moderators to delete anything that's not a question. We're not looking for advice from other people. Unfortunately, I'm the only one here who we can vouch for as being qualified to teach, so we don't take advice from random internet strangers. That's not what this is for. If you have a question, post the question. Otherwise, just be mindful. Do have questions. So let's begin. What is the overall objective of Satipatthana as in the usefulness we are to get from it being mindful? I don't mean that it leads us to liberation, but what use does mindfulness itself do for us? Well, it leads us to liberation. I mean, that's pretty useful. we're we're slaves we're 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 under the thrall of our defilements and it's not even so much it's not even just being slaves though that's a big part of it it's that we're we're corrupted and so our behavior is corrupted we do things and say things and think things that are to our own detriment and to the detriment of others that cause us stress and suffering and shame and guilt and fear and depression. We are under the power of these things. And so liberation is really a good description of the benefit of Satipatthana. Mindfulness is the straightening out of, I mean, really that was the idea of what I just explained. So I hope it wasn't so dense as to make you make you not appreciate that or understand that 
mindfulness straightens out your mind that ability to remember things just as they are as they arise and cease is such a profound change in perspective it clears up a lot of the well, it clears up eventually all of the bad habits that we have that are based on misperception misunderstanding or just lack of understanding lack of perception darkness we're so blind to the nature of what's going on when we experience things because we're so caught up in the realm of people and places and things and our conceptions of who this person is and what they've done to me and so on that we lose sight of the actual reality right in front of us of experience of so much more a healthy way to live but you really have to experience that without ever having experienced it it's hard to appreciate how healthy and and beneficial it is to be mindful so rather than try to convince you i'd encourage you to try it out and if you practice mindfulness you should be able to see how help, helpful it is and how healthy it is to be mindful When there are several distractions at once, should I choose to note one first and then go after another, or should I just note what is the most prominent in each moment? Well, the idea we give during a meditation session is to note whatever is most prominent in each moment, but try then to go back to the stomach unless there's something else that's really dragging your attention away. So you don't have to ignore things, but do try to have the intention to go back so that your mind doesn't just start wandering. After you note something, your intention is to go back. If something else distracts you, note it, but your intention is still to go back to the main object. But generally, putting that aside, the formal nature of the technique, just generally, yes, you know whatever is most prominent in the moment. Would we need meditation if the whole world was peaceful? What did people do before meditation was discovered? And is there something higher than meditation that we haven't discovered yet? I think I'm going to skip this one. Do I really... This is a bit conjectural, no? The note beside the question says that it's related to today's topic. I see. Um, no, it's not. Would we need meditation? The world's not peaceful. I mean, I, I, I don't feel inclined to answer this. I'm sorry to be a downer, but it's not really a um, pertinent question. Like, do you like remember what the idea here is? Do you have a, an, do you have something you need help with? That's our main goal. Sorry, I don't. I don't mean to to criticize the people putting the questions together, but let's just make a note that we're not so keen on conjectural questions. Let's focus on ones where, hey, this person has a problem with their meditation, and an answer would really help them. I guess the the so the salient problem that this person might be having is some doubt. You know, should I take up meditation? Why is it so important to practice meditation? What if I'm what if I'm peaceful? No, then do I really need meditation? I don't feel like I need meditation. It's hard to 
it's hard to reach that it's hard to reach people who haven't already come to appreciate the potential benefits of meditation or the, the potential problems that that they can't solve in their lives the potential problems that mindfulness or they need something like mindfulness to help them solve like i'm i'm at des in desperate straits and i don't know how to fix these problems so maybe mindfulness will help and and then they try it and they see that well actually yes it does help if you're peaceful if if you don't know why you might want to practice meditation it's really hard to convince you uh, i i think the best i can do is say that there are a lot of things that we don't realize about ourselves that can lead us to think that we're perfectly fine or good, that life is as it should be, when in fact life isn't as it should be. So I challenge you to try mindfulness a little bit, uh, if you're even the least bit curious, to try and learn a little bit more about yourself on a deeper level. And if you look deeply inside, and you still find nothing that you think you could benefit from or you could improve upon, then by all means, you might be perfectly enlightened. But uh, I, I think we say that we ask those kind of questions or we say those kind of things like I'm fine or everything's good while acknowledging that we're not perfect, that there are areas on, in which we could improve. We just don't realize how possible it is to to make that improvement or how powerful meditation is in bringing about that improvement or we are simply too lazy to bother trying to improve ourselves so if you don't care that you're a cause for suffering to yourself and others and that you could improve then well that's okay i mean we don't have to you don't have to be stressed about hating yourself and and wanting you know needing for yourself to be better than you are but it is a sign of a advanced individual a higher individual someone who wants to improve themselves someone who doesn't want to improve themselves is well, it's generally a, a sign that either they are already perfect or else they're just lazy and it's neglectful it's negligent because we have things that cause problems for ourselves and others. And it behooves us to try and better ourselves always. I think the problem is we don't realize how how deep and how how dangerous some of our habits are. We don't realize what we're actually doing and how we're maybe hurting others and so on. So we're so steeped in delusion, we don't realize how killing and maybe stealing or lying or cheating, things like that can get to the point where we don't realize how bad those are and it can lead us in very bad direction. Thank you for answering that, Dante. How to deal with friends who are not into meditation. Many friends invite me to dinners where they consume alcohol. I personally do not like to go there, but I will have to go because of friendship. Well... As a bit of a joke, kind of a joke, I would say get new friends, but it's only kind of a joke because you have to, I wouldn't say get new friends, but I'd say you have to acknowledge that friendship is often arbitrary. And so the Buddha talked about good friendship, and you have to acknowledge that 
friendship itself might not be a good thing always. And we think of friendships as good things because we like having friends. We like people who bring us pleasure, basically. So it's really sort of an addiction in that sense. We get very lonely. What if, if I, It would be horrific if I didn't have any friends. Right? But that's only because of our attachment, because of our desire. Our, our, again, we're slaves to that. We are under the will of loneliness. Loneliness is our master that tells us you must seek out friends. doesn't matter how awful they are. You must appease your friends or I will be, I will eat you up, eat you alive. Loneliness. Loneliness is our master. So we try to become independent, free from its power. I can do walking meditation way longer than the sitting meditation. Should I keep it this way? I wasn't really done with that one. Can we go back to it first? Sorry. I know I paused. Um, so as I said, you, you, you acknowledge that friendship is not always good. And sometimes you wouldn't go to such dinners. Uh, in in as with all worldly sort of questions like should I do this and what should I do in this instance, there's not really any hard and fast answer. There's just a matter of being mindful and practically speaking, you're not just going to be able to cut people off, and you probably shouldn't. Sometimes, if you go to a dinner where people happen to be consuming alcohol, you go because it's expected and it's just a cause for great stress and suffering for other family members if you don't go etc etc but you start doing things like i mean making clear that you're not drinking so other people are drinking you make clear that you're a buddhist and as buddhists you don't drink you don't have to make a scene or anything but uh, you don't drink people will stop inviting you to parties and so on and you slowly change your your life changes and your friendships change. Again, I wouldn't adhere or cling to friendships that aren't based on a mutual inclination towards bettering yourself. If people are steeped in things like alcohol, it really is a big deal because it's clear that they're not interested in self-development. Uh, I mean, it's harsh because so so many people drink alcohol, and that's why you wouldn't just shut someone off because they drink alcohol. But it should be a bit of a defining point where if people are unable to see the dangers in alcohol, you know, who, who who aren't impressed by your abstinence from alcohol, maybe even offended by it that there's not much you can do to reach them because unfortunately they've been convinced of the benefits of alcohol. They've been blinded to the dangers of negligence and so on. Okay, I think I'm done now. I can do walking meditation way longer than the sitting meditation. Should I keep it this way? No, 
know, try and do try and do half and half. So you'll see that this changes over time. Sometimes walking is easier, sometimes sitting is easier. And the point of keeping them equal is to challenge yourself, to not just follow your whims. We're not interested in what is easy. Easy isn't all that useful. Not that we're trying to torture ourselves necessarily, but we're not trying to coddle ourselves either. It's the, op it, it's the avoiding of both of those, where you don't torture yourself and you don't indulge yourself. You just do it, regardless of how you feel. Half and half, whether I feel like doing one more than the other. The only exception I would say is if you sit around a lot all day, for example, then maybe a little more walking meditation makes sense because you're sitting too much, right? So then it's just a matter of balancing. And that's the point, is to try to balance. And likewise, if you're on your feet all day, you might do a little more sitting. That's understandable. I've been meditating for many years now, but recently I feel I'm somehow regressing and I'm not experiencing the benefits. My mind is all over the place and I'm suffering more. Is this normal? Well, normal isn't something we're interested in. I mean, you're, you're asking this probably because you're, you're concerned that you might be doing something wrong. And that's not intrinsically the case. Just because you're experiencing what you're experiencing doesn't mean you're doing something wrong. But don't worry about being normal. Let's focus on whether you're doing something wrong or not. So there's no you, but we're com we are complex individuals. Our minds are made up of complex habits, so it's not going to always be a straightforward progression where you become a better and better person. Overall, that should be the case, but there are times where you will experience suffering and your mind is all over the place. But let's look at that. It doesn't make you an evil person just because your mind is all over the place and you're suffering more. So to that extent, you haven't described something that is unwholesome or a sign that you're becoming worse right be careful to differentiate the quality of your experiences from the quality of your reactions so what you're describing is what you would perceive as being poor quality experiences the question is how do you react to them if you've been practicing for years are you still reacting the way you used to because probably not probably you're not deciding oh well I should go out and get drunk then, <laughs> or or whatever you might have used to do to to avoid the suffering. Now, maybe, because there is such a thing as regressing, it does happen. But if you're continue, continuing to practice meditation, you should see that, yes, it's unpleasant. Yes, it's discouraging to experience a distracted mind and, and physical and even mental suffering. But they, they only go so far as being experiences. They are not the reactions. They're not, they're not the same, or they're not the same thing as how you react to them. And so your ability to stay with the experiences, no matter how painful and, and upsetting they are, and ability to note the upset and the disliking of them, I mean, that's the real progress. That's the real independence. 
So I would try to focus on that and focus on well, acknowledging the expectations you had because this is a common thing where we have overestimation of our progress. We think, oh, I've practiced so long. Look, at I must be free from suffering by now. And then something comes and sideswipes you, blindsides you. And you realize, ah, I'm, 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 I'm actually not as good at this as I thought. But that's fine. There, again, it, it it's usually caught up with, again, um, conflating the experiences with the reactions. So don't be just don't let yourself fall into the trap of being discouraged because of what you experience. Really, ultimately, the best advice I can give you is that this is a good opportunity for you to see something that you're still not able to deal with and to learn more about it, learn to see it more clearly. So learn to see those experiences more clearly rather than what you may have done before is try to suppress them, get rid of them, because you see them as a sign of bad practice, for example, regression, for example. That's a negative uh, perception of them. Don't have negative perceptions of things. Try and just see them just as they are. So pain is just pain. Don't be discouraged by it. It's just pain. Distraction, well, once you realize you're distracted, just remind yourself, well, that's distraction, not something bad or good. And then how you feel about this, note that as well. Whenever I try to clear my mind and focus on breathing, I find myself hyperventilating and getting anxious. How does one relax into mindfulness as a beginner? So this is a fairly common misunderstanding. I want you to, I'm, I'm not trying to be critical, and I, I suppose I do come off, I apologize if this ever comes off as overly critical. I'm really just trying to help. So um, try to appreciate some of the misunderstandings in the mind. It's common. There's nothing wrong with you for thinking this, but well, there is something wrong with you for thinking this. The same thing that's wrong with all of us is that we approach things with an attitude of trying to fix, trying to control, trying to succeed. And mindfulness isn't like that. Trying to clear your mind is not mindfulness. It's wrong practice. It's understandable, and it's what most people try to do. But it's not mindfulness. And that's what makes mindfulness so special. It's different from trying to clear your mind. When your mind is not clear, you should focus on the fact that your mind is not clear and try to remind yourself for the express purpose of overriding that attempt to try to clear your mind. That's the actual problem, and that's what you're seeing. What happens when you try to clear your mind or focus on breathing? Hyperventilating anxiousness. Very interesting. Turns out that that's the wrong attitude. It's not mindful. Also, when you're hyperventilating and getting anxious, those as well are just experiences. They are not bad in and of themselves, per se. They're just experiences. Or your perception of them should not be as something bad. Your perception of them should be as what they are. Anxious, you'd say to yourself, anxious, anxious. When you're hyperventilating, you'd note feeling, feeling. Or you could say hyperventilating, but feeling's probably better. 
asking how does one relax into mindfulness has nothing to do with being mindful. Mindfulness isn't about relaxing. It's not a thing that you relax into. Mindfulness is a skill that you cultivate that may involve some fairly uncomfortable experiences where you face things that are not comfortable. You face states of mind that are distressed, but you face them, and that's what makes the difference. You stop reacting to them. When you want to relax, you note the wanting rather than trying to relax. You see, it's a very different sort of practice. So uh, no judgment whatsoever. It's good that you asked this question. It's a very good question, but uh, it's important to start to appreciate the difference between most of the ways we try to deal with our problems and mindfulness, which is quite different and quite a challenge as a result because it challenges us to stop trying to fix things and just try to understand and see them clearly. What do you think of enduring pain during the meditation? It's a big part of the practice. Pain is to be endured even if it's going to kill you. Enduring pain is just, is just, well, it's not quite even enduring in the way we normally think of it, though it's the best way to endure it, and that is to not react to it, to not have an opinion on it, right? Because it's our opinions that turn it into suffering when it makes you stressed or upset. The liberation comes from not reacting to things, including, and you could say especially, things like pain, which we are very apt, uh, very inclined to react to. Is it possible to meditate while going through daily chores, like during work, exercise, eating, etc.? How does that look like? Yeah, just like it does in, or in formal practice. I don't know if you've heard about our at-home course, but we can talk about that if you sign up for that. Read my booklet. I think it's even in the booklet as well. But sign up for the at-home course as well. We can go over some of that and start to help you be mindful during daily life as well. How do it's I all know? Free, so don't, don't. It's not. I'm not charging for it. So feel free to sign up. How do I know when to start walking meditation as a beginner? Uh, our practice starts with walking, so you do walking first and then sitting half and half. Start as as a beginner. You start with walking and then do sitting. Walking and sitting is a round of meditation. If you haven't read our booklet. Encourage you to read it. There are links. Should be a link in the description. If I evoke a negative emotion out of someone, even if it wasn't my intention, am I karmically responsible, or am I only responsible for my state of mind? I guess I might nitpick a little bit and say you're not really responsible at all for anything. It's not quite like that. Because responsible is like, I mean, you are, but I'm nitpicking because I want to be very, let's be very precise about what we mean by karma. Karma is action. And it's not about being responsible. It's about res results of actions. So, of course, everything we do has a result. 
even physically and verbally. But the Buddha, when he used the word karma, he was talking about a specific kind of acting, and that was ethical acting, kinds of acting that were based on wholesome thought, wholesome mind states and, and unwholesome mind states. So if you act or speak with anger or greed or delusion, or if you act or speak with kindness, uh, patience, mindfulness, clarity of mind, uh, there's going to be a different result to those actions. And the results of those actions are much more meaningful than, say, chopping wood or walking down the street. Because those actions have results, but not very meaningful results, not in the same way. So the Buddha pointed out a, a, a different kind of action that had a different kind of result, specifically, um, a specific type of result. That's what the Buddha meant by karma. So it's not even about being responsible. You can't avoid it. If you act unethically, it's called unethically because of it has bad results, and, and you can't avoid those. Now, it's complicated what the actual results are going to be, but that's what it means. So that should answer your question because it helps you understand that um, it has nothing to do with what someone else does. Though I understand why you might ask this question, but it should help you to be clear that, in fact, the consequences of the things you do are not what makes something bad. Uh, it's bad because of the very quality of it. And so if, you're in, if your mind was full of greed, anger, or delusion, this delusion can make you think you're doing the right thing, but you're actually doing something that's stepping on someone's toes or something like that. It's easy to have an unwholesome intention that evokes a negative response from someone else and really not realize that you'd had any negative mind state. But it has nothing to do with how they react to it. Not, not directly because you can't predict how people are going to react to anything you do, right? But you are responsible for your mind state, and you're only responsible for your mind state. Someone, You might get angry at someone, and they might be patient with you. You might get angry at someone, and they might hit you for it. But that doesn't change the quality of the karma. The karma was the state of mind that got angry, and that was bad karma, and it has the same value no matter how the person reacts. Right? That's the idea behind karma. Now, what usually happens is the person, maybe they hate you, suppose, you're going to get angry again and maybe more angry, right? So, yeah, the, the potential for worse karma to arise is certainly going to be different depending on how the other person reacts, but that's a whole other story. Rest the hour. There are currently two questions marked for Tier 1. Do you have time to answer? Okay. How do I develop a constant state of awareness? You don't. There's no such thing as a constant state of awareness. I mean, temporarily, yes, but a big part of the practice is helping us to realize that our states of awareness are momentary. Awareness of seeing is not the same state of awareness as the awareness of hearing. They are different moments of experience, and the awarenesses arise and cease. And not only do the awarenesses arise and cease, but in between awarenesses, there's also reactions and processing moments. 
It's a lot more complicated than that. There's no such thing as a constant state. There, there are certain states that are constant in the sense they are smooth, like, but those are very high meditative attainments and they're specific. Uh, they're not really what we're focused on in this practice. Now, they can be very valuable, but they're not very, they're not the ultimate goal. And they're not something you should be striving for per se, because, well, for two reasons. First of all, because the practice itself is more important. So rather than focusing on some sort of state of awareness, you should be focusing on the moments of awareness that are not constant and trying to smooth out your reactions. I mean, that helps you create a more consistent state of clarity of mind, which is maybe what you're talking about with awareness. But the other thing is these these specific states that are actual continuous awareness are not, again, the ultimate goal. So you do have to let even those states go. That's not the point. As a meditator, I am not inclined to trying new things or activities. Does this mean I have a fixed mindset, and should I cultivate growth mindset? Well, that's a that's the way you phrase it. Is you you phrase it as not inclined it can mean different things. Does it mean you're averse? It depends what your state of mind is. So, this kind of an example of reification you've you you seem to maybe have fallen into some perception of self which i mean we all have i mean that you, you start with that that's ordinary there's nothing uh, mysterious or surprising about that but just be careful that you be clear that that's not the best perhaps way of describing your state so you're not a meditator that's just a concept in the mind there's only experiences and that's so so that can't be a reason for the non-inclination. You being a meditator isn't a real thing. What you mean, I mean, I'm just nitpicking. So what you mean probably is because of having tried, practiced a lot of meditation, but it may not be the meditation itself that's created this either. It doesn't really matter because we're not really concerned about what causes our experiences, right? Because... Our, our our reasons for for making these connections are so that we can say to ourselves, okay, this is all right because this is a good thing, because it came from meditation. But you seem to be questioning that, and that that's an example of showing you how that's not a very good way to approach things. Trying to find reasons why something is is good or okay or right. The only reason we can know that something is good or okay or is right is by becoming familiar with it, by experiencing it, and so that's why our practice is focused uh, on that actual mind state what does it mean to be not inclined to try new things and that's where you're going to get your answer focus on the actual experience without trying to connect it with what might be the cause for it and just identify what is actually happening in the mind at that time when an opportunity comes to try a new thing how do you feel what is it that makes you say oh i'm not inclined to try new things what is that? Is it an aversion to it? Is it just a nothing where there is no desire, where you expected there to be desire? 
because well that in that case that's usually a good sign you know you're not you're no longer a uh, slave to desire you're now freed from that the power it has over you you don't have any need to try new things but if it gets to the point where someone says hey could you help me with and you say oh no no way i'm doing that that's i hate doing that kind of thing oh that can be very unwholesome so so getting into the second part this is probably not the best way to look at it of having a fixed mindset who you might be this is creating a narrative of who you are and we try not to do it delve into that kind of narrative making it's called ahankara mamankara i making and my my making very important poly term so there is there is no I to have the fixed mind state. There's there, there's just states of well stubbornness. I guess you'd probably agree that that's the sort of thing. But it's just a moment of stubbornness. And if that exists, just try and see that for what it is, rather than trying to conjecture what it might be. Just try and see what is actually there, and eventually you'll see what it's made up of. Um, cultivating growth mindset. No, because that relates to some idea of who I am and what I'm lacking and so on. You should try to cultivate mindfulness. It's really you can't, the only thing you can't go wrong with. All right. Thank you all for your help. It's good to see we have a competent and efficient team. We appreciate your support. And thank you all for coming. I appreciate people. Oh, we had 89 people, it looks like. I don't know what the maximum was, but 95 people at one point. Oh, it's great to see so many people interested in these things. I hope it's helpful. We're only here because it might be helpful to people. So I hope this has helped clear up some doubts and misunderstandings and it's able to help you progress in your practice. Wish you all a good week and a, a happy life free from stress and suffering. Sadhu. Sadhu.